0: President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard.
1: President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker.
0: And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our
2: target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. We tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm Bradley Crom, Associate Director of Research at WisdomTree, filling in for Jeremy Schwartz, who's working from our London office this week. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note that I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services and that Professor Siegel is a Senior Investment Advisor to WisdomTree. Our discussion is not a recommendation for any trading strategy, nor is it tied to any offer or sale of investment products. The views of our guests are not those of WisdomTree or any of its affiliates. So we're winding down a fairly active week as it relates to central bank activity. We've seen uh, major announcements from three uh, of the larger central banks, including a 25 basis point rate hike by the Federal Reserve. Broad-based equity markets are are approximately flat on the week. U.S. investors have been forced to digest a, a noticeable dip in consumer spending and inflation. And the French head back to the polls for the second round of National Assembly voting this weekend. So before we kick it off to our guests, I'd like to welcome uh, Professor Siegel back to the program. Professor, what's your take on the data out this week?
0: Oh, well, uh, there's a couple of things. I mean, uh, the the bombshell today, uh, Amazon uh, buying Whole Foods. Um, uh, Now, they say and, and I, you know. Uh, why, why do I mention that since I do macro? Um, uh, if, if, if Amazon could replicate its efficiency in the food market uh, the way it does uh, has done in everything else, uh, it could have a noticeable impact on the consumer price index, which, as Janet Yellen said in her press conference and in, in the minutes, is lagging uh, behind their uh, estimates. Um, believe it or not, it's hard to believe a merger of, uh, of two companies, and, and I mean Amazon has a big market value, uh, uh, obviously um, Whole Foods moderate, but uh, could have a macro effect. Uh, Jim Cramer actually said in his lifetime he has never seen a merger have more effect on one sector than what we heard this morning. Also, you see Amazon with a mammoth market cap. Uh, it's the acquire up three percent on paying what a thirty, forty, fifty percent premium off market. Some, I mean, these are these are really this is huge events. Um, uh, I, I want to mention that as far as the Fed goes, um, they did acknowledge inflation running below. Uh, there is a they told what they're going to do when they unwind uh... their balance sheet they didn't say when they're gonna start they expect to start later this year but there is a no set date uh... for which they will start so uh... that was it it was also uh... you know that they're gonna run off their short end first so they have to minimize the impact on um, the long bond market and that's one reason why the long bond market has been not reacting really to this uh... uh... fed reduction in the balance sheet the, the way um... I mean it certainly did when they were doing uh, the the quantitative uh, easing. Uh, uh the data has been coming in soft, housing starts are soft, this quarter looks like a 2.8 now GDP um you know we're certainly not growing any faster. Uh labor market has moderated. Uh but as Janet Yellen says still the job creation still remains in excess of what is being supplied by normal demographic labor forces. So, you know, there still may be downward pressure on the unemployment rate, and those monthly uh, reports will become very important. It's also important to note, uh, in terms of the long run projections, that the Fed has lowered once again what they think is the natural rate of unemployment. The reason is (laughs) there seems to be no inflation. uh, We should be having much higher wage inflation. Uh, Given this level of unemployment, and they keep on lowering uh, that, Um, I wish they would keep on lowering their long-run Fed funds rate, which uh, I think is still too high at three percent. I think it's more likely to be two. And you know, I've talked about this for years, but you know, not you know, notwithstanding, um, you know, they you know, those those long runs should not be considered to be anything that they are operating on uh, immediately.
2: Great. Uh, Professor, actually I actually had a follow-up question. As one of the few uh, Fed governors that hasn't been on this program yet, how sympathetic are you to Neil Kashkari's argument that, you know, in the absence of inflation, you know, basically you should maintain the, the current course, not necessarily tightening um, and basically waiting for inflation to maybe even overshoot the mandate. Yeah. And, and and basically you can always play catch-up if you need to. Where do you shake out on that argument?
0: Well, um <laughs> uh it, it, you know that it it does is worthy of consideration and we are definitely trying to get Neil onto uh our program I'm sure we will be able to do that later in the summer or uh, in the fall uh to to, to talk about that. Uh the, the problem is is that inflation is a very uh inertial uh slow moving force. Um you know it's like Shooting the elephant as it's charging you when it's one foot away. (laughs) Um, uh, That, at least, is the economic scenario that is generally accepted by economists that you got to do it some preemptive strike there. But we are also seeing, with very little wage inflation and with deflation, uh, deflationary forces as this latest potential merger, um, buyout of, of uh, in the food sector has, um, that uh, really in- inflation may not be a problem. And, you know, there's many people that have stated that uh, we are uh, actually understating um, how much deflation uh, there is because of, uh, you know, so many things are now free um, that people paid for and they don't get, put uh, into the indexes in 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 a way that reflects that, so we actually have less inflation than is actually uh, argued but i think that the main argument of most um economists is uh you start you have to start moving up to normal and let's let's admit one to one and a quarter percent fed funds is not a restrictive rate um and, uh, you know, the long bond is a much more important variable uh, for the housing market, of course, and for many capital expenditures, and it's at 215 as we speak, and that's, you know, also not restrictive. So um, uh, I, I see what uh, Neil's talking about, um, but that's not yet the mantra of, of the FED of, uh, as it sits now.
2: Very interesting. Well, Professor, thank you again so much for joining us, and have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. So now I'd like to welcome my first guest to the show, Guy Petcho. He's a Global Portfolio Manager for Voya Investment Management. Uh, Guy, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks
3: for, (laughs) excuse me, I have a of a horse throw.
2: Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Ben. Sure. Uh, I would like to note that Voya uh, acts as a subadvisor to several Wisdom Tree funds, so I wanted to disclose that up front. Um, so, Guy, prior to joining Voya, you began your career in the Derivative Solutions Group at Deutsche Bank. You then moved on to work as a global macro analyst at Soros Fund Management, focusing primarily on developed and emerging economies. And now your primary focus is on G10 FX and rates. So you heard the professor's thoughts on the Fed meeting. It seems like the market and Fed officials are maybe slightly out of step, at least what we're seeing, um, basically with the, the Fed now tightening two times. But, but interest rates uh, at the longer end of the curve, largely lower, um, you know, really this week's announcement, has that changed your view about risk assets or rates? And, and really, um, where do you see the current economic conditions as of today?
3: Good question. Well, firstly, you're right. The, the, the markets in the Fed are now out of step, and, and there really have been several um, factors that have played a role in that. The first is the fact that, The Fed is on a a pre-programmed course to hike, uh, despite the fact that it is uh, a stable uh, tightening trend. Um, And simultaneously, we had weaker growth in Q1. We had significant stimulus expectations that were completely deflated. Inflation, as we know, has uh, moderated in the economy, and we've seen... um, overall uh, softer commodities which I think bear a significant impact, probably one of the most important um, variables here that have depressed the overall level of rates, and that's why beyond 2000 and, and even also 2017 expectations, we only have about 40% for another hike, and in 2018, as you know, we have uh, perhaps 20 basis points of tightening priced in, but uh, in reality, if we, what we need to do here is we need to go through these variables one by one and make a determination on whether the market will end up being right, and typically the market has been right and the Fed has been wrong year after year. But in this case, I actually believe that the Fed will be right, in part because circumstances are different. It's begun a campaign of increasing interest rates, that is extremely moderate and, uh, e- even under these current circumstances of 2% growth, 2% inflation, the Fed can justify higher, a higher Fed funds rate of say 2%. And when we look at the weaker growth we had in Q1, we've had, uh, a significant number of reports that have disappointed for Q2 growth. But that itself is anomalous because Q2 growth will be better. Q1, we had about 1% growth, and in Q2, we'll get approximately 2.5% growth. And this year's growth rate will be higher than last year's growth rate. It'll be between 2 and 2.5%, assuming no contribution from the fiscal side. <clears throat> I beg your pardon.
2: And, and so that that, that, that oh, did you did you want to go ahead? No, please. Yeah, I was just going to say. And so, is that basically your your, um, I guess, path of least resistance, or your base case in terms of not necessarily seeing any additional fiscal stimulus uh, in in twenty seventeen?
3: Well, we don't have the we, we we frankly never penciled in fiscal stimulus for seventeen because of the uncertain road to achieve it, and even deployment even deployment of stimulus how much actually gets to, would, in the best of times, how much would have gotten delivered in Q4 as opposed to 2018. Very difficult to make that that prediction. I do know that at this point, the market has priced in a de minimis probability of fiscal stimulus affecting markets uh, and, and affecting GDP growth, even in 2018. Um, but my best... Um, Assessment would point to, uh, to a, a, a tax cut in 2018 that tends to produce a, something like 0. 0.4 uh, points to GDP, which is a nice upside, but 2018 can be a very different story than 2017, and that goes to one of my other considerations in looking at the overall picture which is commodity prices and we all understand that oil prices have been under under tremendous pressure for the whole year Brad but it it just hasn't been commodity prices it's also excuse me oil prices it's also been basic factory input products basic metals and textiles and so what concerns me is that last year we had over 30% rise in commodity prices this year now commodity prices basic commodity prices are down a little, and that may represent a potential change in the global industrial recovery that we experienced in the middle of 2016 that allowed for a rise in equities and rise in rates and, and overall a great uh, climate for spread in EM. Um, but that plays further out. Uh, in my mind and the other very big element that I'd love to spend some time chatting about is inflation and actually I, I have to say that I gotta I gotta say this because I respectfully disagree with Professor Siegel Professor Siegel on the, on the, this Whole Foods Amazon um, News I mean it's it's great to um, to think about the inflationary ramifications, but and, and I'm, I'm seeing this also like on Bloomberg News But the truth is that Whole Foods is not a reflection of food prices in general. Um, And let's not forget that food is a variable that is
1: excluded from
3: Fed measures. But importantly, what what this would do is not so much bring food prices down overall. Yes, it would have some disinflationary pressure, but only to the extent that Amazon streamlines Whole Foods, and I'm certainly it will. But it's more the fact; it's a, more a reflection of what has been a continued a trend that we've seen for a long time, where uh, highly sophisticated retail players like Amazon. Um, have been imposing disinflationary pressures. So this is just a continuing story as they penetrate new markets. So I don't see it as a revolution, uh, something that will shock inflation lower and we'll have to adjust in turn.
2: It's very interesting. Um, so I guess continuing down this path, um, you know, I'm actually very curious to to see maybe where you're currently shifting allocations in portfolios, or maybe where you see, you know, opportunity based on some of the news of the week, you know, really has your investment process evolved? You bet. Yeah. yeah,
3: absolutely. So let me, before we jump into that, because it's very important to our thesis, what inflation brands have meant. And I think all, all, all of us are sitting here wondering what is happening. And I think that Yellen made it as clear as she could, given her, uh, her tendency to be a uh... dove that this inflationary print uh... the inflationary print for march was riddled with anomalies and one-offs and those one-offs were not completely didn't completely normalize in april and yes the print in in may was weaker but again we had one-offs from such areas as apparel Apparel inflation was extremely low, at a historic low, um, on a month-over-month basis, and that kind of thing tends to rebound. Same with airline. Airline prices were down 3%, and that's highly volatile as well. Um, So the overall picture, if you actually pull out, which is basically what Yellen is, how Yellen is articulating the message, if you pull out that March CPI print, then your CPI... Your inflation rate doesn't go; it goes from the core inflation rate goes from 1.7 to 2%. So that's on the CPI. Okay, the, the, we know that the Fed looks at the core PCE inflation rate, but nevertheless, so we're back here to to 2%. So normal times, uh, this isn't exactly crisis territory, which is exactly why the Fed can tell us that they're going to continue to tighten in a preset course, which is very important since the since for partly legacy reasons and partly because this is part of the plan, since they're, of course, implementing a balance sheet reduction. You really can't have a balance sheet being reduced without also hiking rates. It doesn't work that way. Similarly, Ben Bernanke was very clear about the fact that QE operates hand-in-hand with cutting rates. So going to how we're thinking about risk, um... I can tell you that uh, at this point, firstly, yields, treasury yields, appear extremely low. Um, in part because we believe that through our analysis very carefully, that inflation rates will stay at approximately two percent for the end, uh, adjusted for this March anomaly. <clears throat> Excuse me, they're already at two percent. We have a projection. Of two to two and a half percent on GDP growth for this year—that's I, I, not controversial. Um, in addition to that, um, we also understand that there's significantly less systematic risk that would bring boon yields or U.S. yields lower, and uh, and so that take, that paints a picture of generally higher yields. Again, the concern is since it is, we do have a U.S. cyclical outlook that is stable and improving, but what happens to the slowdown in global industrial demand that will hit hit the, the real economy is probably more like in 2018. But the bigger picture, when I look at China, I mean, China is continues to grow gangbusters and running at 7%, nice and stable, its exports will continue to rise, and credit creation, so it's... Stimulus program is actually moving forward quite well. There's a lot of a lot of conflicting information about China because President Xi, the president of China, is targeting specific excesses or excesses or specific market bubbles in the economy, and so media tends to focus on that and express concern that perhaps China is slowing the process of maintaining current growth. Current growth in its model, but that's not what we what we find. Um so in terms of what this means, yields are low. However, they're going to gradually increase from these very low levels. Positioning is extremely long at this point as well. And as a result, realized volatility should stay low. So of course everyone talks about realized volatility. Well we believe that realized volatility from a macro perspective should actually remain quite low. And in part that's because, Brad, it's not just about realized volatility, but it's about economic volatility. Economic volatility, I mean, if we're going to just have 2 to 2.5%, as we expect, then economic vol will stay low. And we compare economic volatility to high-yield spreads, EM spreads, IG spreads, so basically spread product in general. The level of economic volatility we have today is the same as we had in 2005 to 2006 to 2007 before the crisis.
2: Hey, not to uh, cut you off, but um, just uh, want to do a quick reset here. So you're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Bradley Crom, and I'm speaking today uh, with Guy Petro, Global Macro Portfolio Manager for Voya Investment Management. Um, Back to maybe one of those points that you highlighted earlier, this idea that you see interest rates in the U.S. as well as Germany, uh, particularly the short end of the curve, potentially rising. Um, A lot of focus and a lot of, um, I guess, reading uh, of global markets. You know, a lot of people are very curious about what's going on with the U.S. dollar. Um, What are some of your specific views in terms of maybe what you're expecting from the dollar over the next 12 to 18 months and and maybe how that has evolved over the last uh, six to 12
3: okay <clears throat> well very good question but the I think we all understand why the dollar rose after the Trump election but it's also understandable given this the softness in economic growth that the economy experienced given the softness of inflation and the fact that European growth has done better, that EMs in this climate have received enormous capital inflows, and that those economies have done much better, that you would see the dollar underperform. And going forward, Brad, I expect that to be the case, because if we think back to the origins of the recovery, the global uh, reflationary recovery in 2016, it was indeed from China um, ramping up its projects, its construction projects, and consuming massive excess quantities of uh, basic resources. And that caused a ripple effect in terms of trade. And by ripple effect, I mean that the prices of exports in China, Brazil, and other uh, major exporters um, were uh, increased relative to their import prices. And as a result, that also improved the economic outlook of those economies, triggering the capital inflows, triggering those currencies to appreciate versus the dollar. And that's why, of course, EM equities also outperformed uh, DM equities in the, the process. Well, I expect that to continue for an extended period of time. Part of the reason is that these economies were suppressed not only by their export sectors, but also because exports were suppressed before the global inflationary recovery. You also had a big slowdown in their consumption sectors. So now that you've had an improvement in terms of trade, an improvement in exports across Russia, India, Brazil, um, China, of course, big time, that will enable will facilitate for greater business and household expenditure. So there's a nice, uh, feedback loop that will continue to drive EM currencies stronger. You know, that said, uh, what we've gotten from, w- it, what drove the Euro stronger up to this point was a combination. And I point to the Euro because of course we had Draghi coming out recently and, um, and the announcement was somewhat disappointing in terms of the fact that uh, nothing was discussed for t- for further tapering of QE. But what? But at this point, the euro has been fueled by better growth, stable inflation. Actually, um, however, now the tone has changed with the ECB. So it's a little trickier to point to a strengthening euro, which was my call few months ago now probably we're going to have a period where the euro actually comes under some pressure and the dollar actually appreciates versus the euro also versus sterling because the sterling economy in particular brad looks to be um entering a period of weakness but not just for the year which is what economists say but according to my work specifically for the second quarter so it will very quickly come upon the bank of england that it uh cannot raise interest rates um following the fact that the bank of england yesterday had a 5 to 3 vote to not raise interest rates which was a very close call uh and so as a result um you had it, the the effectively there was less uh less it was less dovish frankly more hawkish than uh, than it was in the past So I look at the dollar, and also I see it being – so it becomes a very idiosyncratic story, whereas in the past it could be, well, the dollar is going to depreciate for the first half of 2017 because EM is going to be better, because Europe is going to be better, UK is going to be better. Um, It's no longer that way. Also, two important uh, currencies that I'd like to mention, uh, Japan. So while we've had, uh, so the BOJ reinforced its position, but that currency has depreciated significantly. So it should tell us something about what's happening globally to risk appetite, but also what's happening to the Bank of Japan. And the Nika has also broken to new highs. And what's happening over there, that is, that uh, the economy is faring particularly well, and it and if you look at the amount of asset purchases that the BOJ is conducting it is running significantly below what the BOJ has suggested or has indicated it should so in other words there's stealth tapering <clears throat> happening in Japan and that's allowed the currency to depreciate as well and finally in Canada I believe that economy is doing exceptionally well the Bank of Canada just turned more hawkish so we're going to see I think a lot of action but it is a Country to country story when it comes to the dollar.
2: Interesting. And so, basically, you your your base view is maybe that you're you're slightly more skeptical of Europe, but you're you're much more favorable on emerging markets. Is is that fair to say?
3: It is. Uh, that's going to run only a few months because of the fact that we do have um, what I consider to be a, a a potential turning point in global industrial production, which really clouds the picture, of course, because it was the turn in global industrial production that took all markets up in 2017 and it's a potential downturn in global industrial production given the slowdown that we've experienced in commodities that could impact um, the that could impact currencies in 2018. So I can't give you a 12- to 18-month view at the moment because I don't know quite how this will develop, but I can give you a six-month view on EM currencies as well as the other economies.
2: Guy, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. So stay tuned, everyone. After the break, I'll be talking with Dan Weisskopf, who's a managing partner of Access ETF Solutions. I'm Bradley Crom, and you're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111.
3: You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio,
0: powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111.
2: Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Bradley Crom, sitting in for Jeremy Shorts. And joining me now via phone is Dan Weisskopf, founder and managing partner of Access ETF Solutions. Dan, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much, Brad. Thanks for having me.
2: So, Dan, you're an ETF strategist, wealth advisor, Uh, And you've done quite a bit of work on the restaurant industry. You are the founder of Access ETF Solutions, which owns the Restaurant Leaders Index, which we'll be talking quite a bit about later on. Um, But before you respond, please note that Dan is a registered representative of Investment Planners, Inc., and an investment advisor represented Uh, I'm sorry, an investment advisor representative of IPI Wealth Management. Dan's views are his own and not those of investment planners or IPI Wealth. Additionally, today's discussion focuses focuses exclusively on the restaurant leaders index, not any funds that may track said index. So that being said, Dan, um, Professor Siegel said it was a bombshell announcement um, with Amazon's Purchase of Whole Foods Markets for thirteen point seven billion. Uh, definitely want to get your thoughts on that because one of your, you know, core uh, drivers of returns in the restaurant in- industry is is potentially the impact that uh, technology can have on on this segment of the economy. Um, but but before that, maybe I wanted to take a step back and get a bigger picture. What what really started driving your interest in the restaurant industry, and then also how that impacted your decision to create the Restaurant Leaders Index.
1: Well, thanks, Brad. So I guess I start going back to when I had a hedge fund um, where it was focused on fragment fragmented, consolidating industries driven by technology change and marketing. Well, when, when you look at the restaurant industry, that's what we're dealing with. And Amazon's event today is, is an example of that. And I came into the ETF industry 14 years ago and saw how ETFs were going to revolutionize you know, asset management. And our, our principle behind Access ETF Solutions is really to try and democratize how um, people can access different strategies. So going back about six years ago, I started doing research on restaurant, uh, restaurant companies in the industry. It was the activity by the names like Warren Buffett, Bill Ackman, 3G, Starboard, uh, Jeffrey Smith, Nelson Peltz, Corvex's Keith Meister, and Martin Franklin that really kind of pulled me into it. And then, frankly, when I looked into how the private equity um, area was focused on it, Rourke Capital, Apollo, Carlyle, JB, Oak Hill, you know, I, I started wondering why all this smart money was really um, drilling down. And... In my research, it came to me that it was a formula by which refranchising was realigning the franchisor and franchisee resources within the quick-serve category, which I felt was was clearly going to accelerate growth. You know, it's kind of – it's a bit of a paradox that the restaurant industry has so many different dynamic business models, which was part of the problem I had in developing the index. So I really had to sink my teeth into one category, which was the quick-serve but at the end of the day, where returns come from maximizing operating efficiencies and capital allocation is your primary goal, the definition of success becomes the maximum return on invested capital, which philosophically is where I want to be.
2: So uh, you mentioned quick serve. Can, can you talk a little bit about you know, those types of businesses, how they might um, be slightly different from full service? Because my understanding is that you know, the index that you constructed can, you know, includes both. So, so really, you know, what are, what are, how are they similar and how are they different?
1: Well, you know, the, the whole industry of, um, the whole restaurant industry is like $800 billion and it's the, uh, second largest private employer and it's 4% of GDP. And, you know, the restaurant, National Restaurant Association speaks to the fact that for every dollar spent in a restaurant, $2 is spent in the economy. But to answer your question differently, um, or really, frankly, to answer your question, it's it's a bit about the business model, and it's also the fact that the quick-serve area is is the fastest-growing in the restaurant industry. Uh, So when people invest in restaurants, they're usually looking for growth, not value. So we wanted to tilt that way. So we are 70% weighted to quick-serve and 30% weighted to full service. And the index has about 31 holdings. So that means that basically 20 are quick serve and 11 are full service.
2: Interesting. And, and so you, you had also mentioned some of these key characteristics. So so largely the restaurant industry being viewed as a growth industry, uh, also a business, particularly with the franchising model spinning off a lot of free cash. So, so really, how do you view these types of businesses being incorporated into a broader portfolio? I think a lot of people also view restaurants as being, um, you know, largely consumer focused. Um, You know, how does it fit into overall asset allocation and and how should investors be thinking about risk?
1: Well, well, first off, you know, when I look at the restaurant industry, I'm looking at in the context that The U.S. economy is 70% consumer-driven. So I would argue, actually, if if you're not paying attention to the restaurant industry, you're kind of missing something critical. I'd also point out that um, the restaurant industry represents about half of what Amazon represents in the S&P 500. So it's a growth allocation that is um, mostly small mid-cap, and you you could call it a satellite position as well. But you know what? people should know what they own, and at the end of the day, the frequency by which people are visiting these stores again, like fifty million people are going to a restaurant every day. Why not own what you can you can touch and you can see and you can frankly smell, assuming the food tastes good <laughs>
2: um, that's great um so you had also mentioned earlier you know a lot of attention being garnered from large activist investors or PE firms. Um, certainly one of the criticisms that, that you know some market naysayers might have is the role that buybacks and dividends have had on the broader market. Uh, is that a trend that you're also seeing in the restaurant industry? Um, you know where a lot of these businesses are, are borrowing capital very cheaply uh, and using that to, to buy back stock and, and push out dividends?
1: Well, these companies are not mostly very levered. Um, they're using their free cash flow to buy back their stock. So for the most part, um, with maybe a few exceptions, um, they're just trying to en- en- enhance share all the value with the free cash because, again, um, I'd say about 70% of the companies that um, we own, well, I shouldn't say that, uh, that are in the index, um, uh, are the franchisor model. So they're clipping the coupon, right? And by clipping the coupon, they don't need to spend a lot of money um, in the way of CapEx because they're not building out the stores. So instead, they're trying to enhance shareholder value by owning a larger portion of that coupon.
2: Right, and so you think that's, that's largely the catalyst here, right? The same way that technology companies are being viewed as very capital-white, in uh, in really all of their earnings are are basically being you know plowed in into the bottom line is that is that fair to say that, that that's the trend you see in the restaurant industry as well?
1: That's definitely the, the trend I see in the quick serve where we're overweighted. Yeah, no. Um, and and yeah, so I'll I'll just leave it at that.
2: Sure. So uh, also I wanted to come back and, and get some of your you know some additional thoughts on you know what you see is is Amazon's in game. In this acquisition of Whole Foods, um, you know, it's it's interesting. A lot of companies like Walmart start brick and mortar and then through their acquisition of Jet.com are attempting to get into the online market. You're seeing the exact opposite from uh, a store like Amazon where they're actually starting to build out brick and mortar stores and, and obviously looking to do that in the grocery business in a big way through this acquisition of Whole Foods you know, really, how do you see them incorporating technology? How are are some of the ways that you've seen in the restaurant industry technology being incorporated? And and ultimately, what does that mean for these businesses going forward?
1: Well, I I think um, the the leaders in the restaurant industry will be um, users of what I call smart menu. And that's the whole holistic approach to technology, whether it's about how you set up your kitchen, and, or it's the delivery mechanism, um, or it's it's how you account for your employees, at the end of the day, technology is probably going to be an increasing spend for a lot of the restaurant industries. And that's part of the reason why the consolidation may accelerate in the franchisee area as a result of what's going on in um, with Amazon, right? And I would also guess that that um, and it's really hard to know what Amazon's doing, right? But one of the, the competitors um, have been companies like you know, Blue Apron or Munchery, and they're you know, delivering food at, at you know frankly a reasonable price for people. And and you know what, those companies are losing a ton of money. And now it's possible that the threat by Amazon doing something similar may you know take away some of their venture capital money.
2: Interesting. So, whenever I was preparing for our discussion here, one of the things that I was, you know, fairly struck by was that, you know, you've seen over the last several months, large investors like Warren Buffett really kicking themselves for for largely missing the boat on Amazon. So, you know, back to the late '90s, the IPO, they along with a lot of other tech, com- tech companies come under pressure. They're basically forced to reassess their business model and and, and pivot, you know, to to a, ri- uh, a wider um, distribution model of not just focusing on books. So I, I think one of the interesting things is that since 2004, Amazon's up 25% per year annualized. But on the other hand, you've got a company like Domino's Pizza that's up over 30% per year over that same time period. So so largely, you know, investors kicking themselves for for not necessarily, you know, realizing that that Amazon was such a great buy. Um but then you've got, you know, a business like Domino's that's that's in basically every major and, and minor town uh around, you know, the country growing it at an even faster clip. So so largely, do you have a, a view that that you know what's what's underlying this this increase in, in Domino's, is, you know, share price? And and also do you view that as is something that can potentially continue?
1: Um well You know, I hesitate to really comment uh, about any one specific company or stock, but there is definitely a pattern of success in the pizza companies with how they're delivering their food, right? You know, I I should also say I'm a New Yorker and, you know, I love my local pizza, you know, but what is often lost uh, about pizza is its simplicity of ingredients, which helps the menu, right? So it helps them manage their costs and operations. And in the in the case of a firm like, like Domino's or or frankly Panera Bread, um, it's the technology that has driven the success of these companies in a major way. I mean, a few years ago, Panera Bread you know launched the 2.0 um, uh, strategy, and you know now a very significant portion of their revenues are done through kiosks or online, which saves a fortune.
2: So uh, actually, Dan, we're going to take a quick uh, pause here. So I'm Bradley Crom, and you're listening to Behind the Markets. I've got Dan Weisskopf on the phone with me. Dan is the founder and managing partner of Access ETF Solutions. Uh, we're talking broadly about the restaurant industry uh, in, in ways that investors could potentially think about this as a, a, an alternative or an overweight to um, the consumer and, and a way to play uh, a rebound or, or sustained growth in U.S. GDP. Dan, do you view that largely as a as a risk? Is is the underlying thesis of investing in, um, you know, restaurant stocks? Is is it really predicated on, you know, faster growth, uh, a stronger U.S. economy, um, you know, more of the same that we've seen over the last, uh, you know, call it seven or eight years?
1: I I think that a faster economy in the U.S. would help restaurant companies. But make no mistake about it, a lot of these companies, and restaurant brands is a perfect example with its acquisition of Popeyes, a lot lot of these these trends are also international. So I do believe that the U.S. will help, um, but what also is helpful in the context of the restaurant industry uh, is less regulation. Um, and and, and I'm, I'm optimistic about that as well.
2: So uh, maybe maybe to pivot here. Uh, so I, re- I recently watched the movie The Founder, which is, is basically about the rise of McDonald's corporate founder Ray Kroc. Uh, and, and one of the most interesting quotes from the movie is by Harry Sunborn who's uh, the character played by B.J. Novak. So he says, basically, you don't seem to know what business you're in. You're not in the burger business. You're actually in the real estate business. Is it fair to say that, you know, this quick service uh, model used by a lot of uh, restaurants is, is less about delivering product and, and more about delivering services and technology through the restaurant?
1: Well, I think, I think you have it right. Um, it is very much about customer service and the customer experience, and it's, it's a highly competitive industry. Um, you've got to get the timing right, and the expectations by the customer are very hard. You know, they really are. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's right. The, the mis, misperception about the restaurant industry, as I see it, though, is that it's either about land or that there's a high default ratio um, for these quick service brands. Because that's just really not the case, in part because like a McDonald's doesn't want to have a lot of defaults uh, against its franchise brand because it is regulated and it is disclosed.
2: Interesting. So, um, you know, maybe can you can you talk a little bit more about, you know, the restaurant industry in general? Um, I also happen to live in New York City, a a notoriously difficult um, city to to have success with restaurants. But even among the non-public companies, the, the ones that. You know, seem to be having the most success. Um, It's it's not just the ones that have one restaurant that's that's always popular. It's it's the one that you know maybe you gain some notoriety from from that first restaurant, and then you you try to parlay that success into a second location. Just because with with very high real estate costs, margins in that particular segment of the market just just aren't there. Um, Can you talk a little bit about maybe the the life cycle or, or the evolution? of the restaurant business, because, I mean, you got to think that it's a slightly different risk versus reward from a lot of these companies that that do rely on this franchise model. They are a proven success. They're obviously publicly traded, highly regulated. They've got the business model figured out. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned that these are, are largely small and mid-cap businesses, a lot of them growing very, very quickly. Um, you know, talk about how these businesses ultimately evolve and and kind of what impact that has on on returns going forward.
1: That that multi-factored question, right? So so (laughs) at the franchisor level, um, the model works like they have three ways to increase revenues, right? Same store sales, then they have price increase, okay? And then they have unit volume. And what's occurred in part as a result of the private equity, um, uh, private equity money moving into the group um, is that because multiples are like five to seven times EBIT, uh, private equity has been pretty aggressive. And the refranchising has, has worked in that the smaller operators who are, frankly, less strong um, have been able to uh, sell to consolidators. Um, and with the private equity money, what's occurred is that, that, that the stronger operators have just gotten bigger. But generally speaking, the two or three franchisee operator, um, you know, has three three stores, and then his goal is to buy a four-store. And, you know, when they're really good, they keep going so that, that at some point on a regional basis, they might have 10 stores. Um, and then they've got a real business. I mean, it's a very significant business.
2: Um. I guess coming back to this idea, again, you know, private equity or, or a lot of activist investors have been fairly interested in this space. You know, who are some of the larger um, potential acquirers? Is, is it possible um, that you do see uh, a company that, that is maybe related, um, that that they're interested in, in combining or consolidating brands? Can, can you talk a little bit about your outlook in terms of what that might mean for the industry?
1: Well, I- it would not surprise me if there were some uh, IPOs that came about, um, you know, as a result of in you know, a private equity monetizing uh, some uh, some brands, right? Um, World Capital, I think, has either six or nine billion dollars under management. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at some point, you know, when, when you know, I, I forget if I mentioned that that Carlyle spent two billion dollars for the master franchise rights. To McDonald's, and then they're going to bu- turn around and pay McDonald's a royalty for that. So um, I think I'm answering your question, uh, but if not, ask it a different way.
2: No, I mean that's that's definitely uh, super helpful. Um, you know, I'm just trying to you know completely understand you know what these potential drivers are, um, you know. To the extent uh, you know uh, you you invest in some of these businesses and they're ultimately acquired, but it sounds like you're saying that that private equity is is active on both sides of the market, both from the the acquire perspective as well as uh, looking to monetize some earlier investments.
1: Um, well, let me let me answer the question differently, actually, because since the index uh, went live, um, I think three firms have been either. Um, Uh, been taken over um, or um, restructured by activists. And there's at least one or two other um, companies in the index that are being pursued um, by activists. Uh, Buffalo Wild, as an example, has been um, very aggressively uh, pursued by Mercata And they finally resolved um, where there was a change in management.
2: Um, Very interesting. So uh, I guess, you know, from your perspective, um, you know, what what should investors necessarily be selling in terms of using those proceeds to buy into this particular strategy? I I know that you said that it it fits in the consumer, it fits in both the small and mid cap space, but but generally, where do you view this as, as being a replacement for in terms of overall asset allocation?
1: Yeah, um, I view this group as a consumer discretionary group that is defensive as well as offensive. Um, As an ETF strategist, um, uh, there are uh, about 15 billion, maybe 16 billion of consumer discretionary ETFs out there, with two or three of them way overweight by Amazon. Again, great company, but... um, you know, when something is you know, 15% uh, weighted in an ETF, you're really not getting diversification. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I would argue that um, the restaurant industry has the potential to perform in line with uh, most anything that's out there in the way of consumer discretionary um, ETFs. I would I would also say that, um, you know, listen, mid-cap, small-cap growth, you know, you can go broad or you can know what you own. Um, As the index owner, I can say that, you know, the the performance um, uh, in the past has been aligned with or outperformed uh, mid-cap, small-cap group. Actually, it's outperformed.
2: And then I guess maybe one final point from you, just in terms of some of the, you know, indicators or risks that you're viewing in the market. Obviously, this particular strategy, very, very strong performance over the last several years. What are some of the things that that investors should potentially be on the lookout for as an indicator that that they may want to, you know, potentially re- uh, reduce exposure to to this part of the market?
1: This part of the market meaning mid cap, small cap, or or, or, okay. or also
2: the the, uh, the the restaurant industry as well.
1: Um, I would say that we're if, if regulations. Increase, I would worry a lot. Uh, I would worry about minimum wage as well. And, and if, if I were investing in individual companies, I would really worry if somebody did not have either a real um, strategy with technology or if their franchisee network wasn't strong.
2: Excellent. Well, Dan, we've got about 30 seconds. Any uh, final thoughts that you might have uh, on on the industry in general or or any parting thoughts?
1: You know, I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity. Um, I I think my my hope um, is that same-store sales traffic um, in the next uh, couple of months will pick up. And my expectation is that uh, it'll pick up because the comps have become easier. Um, and, you know, weaker comps going back a year and a half could be a good menu for a strong performing group.
2: Excellent. Well, Dan, thank you again uh, so much. I would also like to thank our earlier guest, Guy Pecho from Voya Investment Management. Thanks very much to my producer, Patty Hall, as well as sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. Everyone have a wonderful weekend.